0: Welcome to Physics Alive! I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. I've got to tell you something. I love podcasts. There! I said it! I said my big, big secret. I love podcasts. Okay, maybe it's not too much of a secret, considering I am hosting a podcast. When I was thinking about how I might share with the physics and STEM education community the things that I've learned and the things that I am learning, of course, there are a number of different platforms. I could have thought about using a blog. I do fancy myself as a bit of a writer. I could have created YouTube videos. I do know how to get myself in front of a camera and take a video. But you know what? Neither of those really spoke to me because I don't really ingest media as much those ways. I do, of course, read blogs when I search things. I do, of course, watch YouTube videos. But I try to be very careful with that consumption because it can be so easy to get wrapped up into it and then to chase article after article that you're reading or to watch video after video that is being recommended to you. And, yeah, I try to be careful with my time that way. But podcasts, on the other hand, this is something where I may be doing an activity that I can also be listening to something while I'm doing that activity. And maybe it is not taking my mental power away from what I'm doing, such as if I'm washing dishes, if I'm vacuuming the house, I can be listening. And to be able to listen and to learn new things or to be entertained uh, is is really something I'm drawn to. And certainly for long car rides, short car rides, I try to listen, but for the longer car rides, going on longer trips where I have two, three, four hours in the car that I can be listening and I can just follow a theme and listen to one or two shows exclusively. I don't know, there's something I just really love about the podcast. And I've probably gone on and on about that too long, but that's sort of my introduction, I guess, for today's episode. One of my absolute favorite podcasts in the education space is the EdSurge podcast. And this is a podcast that is hosted by Jeff Young, the managing editor of EdSurge. He is the producer and host of this weekly podcast that is about the future of learning. Jeff was previously an editor and writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education. He holds a master's degree in communication, culture and technology from Georgetown University and he was a 2014 Nieman Fellow at Harvard University. I've been following this podcast for a number of years, and I really appreciate the reporting that is done and the topics that that come up. Let's just look at a few of the recent episodes. There's an episode about building the metaverse and how educators can be part of that An episode about who pays for inclusive excellence at universities. Episode about remote school meltdowns, a closer look at student well-being during the pandemic. How COVID-19 Will Impact School Reform Movement. Uh, new Perspective on Supercharging the Brain. So that's just uh, a recent sampling of some of the episodes that have been released this year. And I I just love the, the, the questioning style that Jeff brings to the episode. Yeah, the questions that he asks and the guests that are brought onto the show. And it is... Uh, a show that i absolutely hope you get a chance to check out and take a listen to and i am really i'm just such a fan of of jeff and what he is doing with this show and so i am so pleased to have him come on the podcast and speak with me today today i'm speaking with jeff young host of the EdSurge podcast a weekly program about the future of education featuring insightful conversations with educators tech innovators and scholars I've personally been listening to this podcast for about four years, and it is my go-to for staying informed about the landscape of higher education. Jeff asks insightful, probing questions, and it's always clear that he cares about our students and our students getting a great education. He focuses on issues that I think many teachers truly care about. So Jeff, I want to thank you upfront for your tremendous reporting. and also thank you for speaking with me today.
1: oh, hey, thanks, Brad. That's and that was so kind of you. and um, Yeah, appreciate your listening.
0: Thanks. Uh, So I often like to start with a moment of gratitude. Who has been an important mentor in your life and career, and what role have they played in shaping your path?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely have had many teachers that have been those mentors for me over the years that, you know, whether it was my English teacher in senior year of high school, who really made me, who she, she used to play, um, Mrs. Murphy used to play popular records or, you know, she would play like Simon and Garfunkel and, you know, like whatever her favorite records were. And, and we would analyze the lyrics together. And she like the idea, the idea that she taught me that I'd never really been exposed to before was that learning doesn't just have to be about these old things in the past that you could take anything from and analyze it and, and apply kind of like be curious about Whatever you wanted to be, whether it was technically, you know, uh, school, a material or not, like every life was school material, mm. and it was is a, a huge, you know, kind of in, influence for me and a, a kind of mind blowing one when I was in high school, and throughout, um, you know, throughout my my career, I was lucky enough to um, study with great professors who, uh, you know, taught me things. Um, I did, a, I did a grad program on technology and and society at, at Georgetown. Um, at and, and worked with David Silver, who was just this young academic who was on the on the leading edge of studying. Uh, he, he created this kind of center for cyberculture studies and was just like doing that. And then he just decided that he wanted to shift gears and started doing work on food and you know food and culture. And, and he took his curiosity, you know, where it took him and it, it, and a lot of people were like, well, you created this niche. You, why would you ever, you know, you specialize and you've become like, you made it, you've got this, set you know, this, this identity and it, it could be your career. And he was kind of like, well, what I, but I'm curious about something new now. And I feel like there's been, you know, people that reminded me what it's all about, that it's not just You know to advance along some ladder um Um, but mm -hmm. that that if you know that there's this world out there that that you want to bring yourself to and and hopefully you can um do do work that that does you know make a difference and and is driven by your curiosity and values that instead of getting caught up in in kind of professional um just professional achievement so i I guess those are a couple but i i feel like there have been editors as well um at places i've worked that have that have been been wonderful and in, in just kind of helping me understand that telling stories is also about then being a journalist is also about more than just the grind of of covering a beat
0: <laughs> yeah no i love that the idea of following your your curiosity and you know because those I guess when you get passionate about something and you're really interested in something, that's when you're going to really put in that effort and hopefully love what you're doing and and do a better job of of what you're doing at the same time.
1: Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think I think it's it's great when you can make it when you can make it work.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, right. That's that's the challenge sometimes too. So I'm always curious how researchers and educators find their way into education reform and helping to shape the path forward. And as a journalist and reporter, you are indeed a researcher who's sharing your findings with a broad audience to help us make decisions and to be better educators. So you graduated back in 95 with an English degree from Princeton. And the same month, according to your resume, uh, it seems that that you graduated, you got employed right away as a staff reporter for the Chronicle of Higher Education. So I'm interested, what drew you to reporting on education and uh, what were some of those early interests you had?
1: Yeah, no, it was really a time, you know, 95, you mentioned like the internet was this kind of crazy new thing that people, mm-hmm. some people were still just getting there, you know, in the web, especially was, was very much um, in its infancy or in its, you know, mainstream infancy. And. I was really interested coming out of college in like covering tech and being a tech journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and was, um, really interested in the role technology might be, might actually play. Um, there's a Julian DeBell book that really was, uh, it became a book, but it started as an article, um, called my tiny life was the name of the book. And it was about these like, um, early, um, I think they were called like MUDs, like multi-user domain. I mean, they were, they were like, basically um, they were hard to describe, but they were sort of like a text-based online environment, social-based, right? So kind of like a second life, but without pictures, because the internet wasn't up for pictures at that time for (laughs) for, for, for that. And so it was this very um, uh, odd, you know, kind of uh, space that was, there wasn't totally mainstream but there was a lot of mainstream fascination with it and he wrote this book about how people were having all these like all these social dynamics and challenges and good and bad like it was helping people like realize their identity mm-hmm. but it was also leading to there were also incidents early on of sexual harassment and and kind of things that were uh, problematic that people weren't writing about in glowing you know tech uh, articles about this new technology and he was trying to see like the a human kind of, when the human meets this technology, it's it's complicated. And I think that was really, you know, cover, I, I took the job, I was lucky enough to get the job at the Chronicle of Higher Education and covering, I, I quickly ended up covering technology there. And one of the things that was great, higher ed was really the on the leading edge of thinking and creating this technology space because colleges were one of the best connected, you know, Broadband connected places in a time where that was unheard of outside of college, you know, college campus, and so um, it was a place where um, there was a lot of leading edge experimentation in what it looked like, and a lot of scholars really engaging. So I was able to, you know, um, cover a lot of, or and 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 meet and talk and and you know, interact with a lot of researchers that were kind of on the cutting edge of thinking through these tough issues. Um, and over time, I, you know, being at the Chronicle for a while, really fell in love with covering education as a beat and seeing, mm-hmm. um, the more time I spent, you know, getting to go to campuses to report my stories and learning more about the world of an educator. It was just, it seemed like, a it's so many other stories besides just education. I'm sorry. So many other stories besides just technology, um, that were, mm-hmm. that were, um, very fertile ground to to sort of um,
0: share with people and Oh and the academy is a little with stories yeah <laughs> yeah you know no, it, it's the, I mean you mentioned you mentioned second life there and it just reminds me of the one of your most recent episodes of the Search podcast where you talk about the, the the metaverse and you have a guest on referring to that and it's it's all about it's like it's these same questions it's just sort of the next level of not only the visual but now immersed in visual and how can we have that be the best learning environment? So that that's going to, I guess, continue to be a human struggle to grapple with the technology that we are slowly being absorbed into, or quickly being absorbed into at this point.
1: No, it's it is a good point, and there there are these echoes of these same questions that have come up along the way in different stages of kind of you know as technology has evolved, and and so much has changed just since I've been doing this. Um, it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy to think about.
0: Yeah, let's get some of these perspectives then. So you've been reporting on education for it seems over 25 years now, and a significant part of that time was uh, writing for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Education, but recently you've been a senior editor with EdSurge for just over five years. Uh, this must be quite the perspective you've developed viewing higher ed from the lens of journalism. So what are some of the positive developments that you've seen over this past? quarter century if I put it that way uh and what do you think are some of the challenges that have remained or maybe even grown
1: huh you know I think a positive yeah it's a it's a a great question I mean there are it's it's good to step back and try to think of like how how things have changed I think one thing that I was really interested in um I'm always interested in is just getting people to sort of uh you know, see that some of the very ingrained kind of ways people do things are, um, you know, they're they're not necessarily the only way. Or mm-hmm. um, and so I think there's been that's been obviously a theme with with technology and education, but not only with technology, right? And as people kind of think through uh, the challenges that have faced, um, especially higher ed over that period of time, you mentioned the you know there, there's a lot of challenges um, for. I guess you might call it the business model of higher ed these days, but, you Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. colleges struggling to, um, you know, make a way that works and is still affordable enough for students. Right. Um, And, and that, you know, so I think the one thing that I think is positive is that there are a lot more conversations, frank conversations about, um, you know, why do people do it this way? Or, um, you know, I think there's a lot more willingness to engage in like, maybe teaching doesn't have to be the same as it's always been, Mm, but mm -hmm. let's make it good, whatever it is. And that was, I think, a struggle where you'd go to, I'd go to conferences where people would be griping that like, Oh, most professors don't want to change. And I kind of feel like, you know, you still might hear some of that, but it's, it's certainly less true. I mean, I think, I think the idea that educators are somehow against, you know, grading what they're up to is like maybe it never was true but it's it's much more an open conversation and there's less of that sense of like we have to convince people to have the conversation it's much more Mm -hmm. like let's get into the conversation yeah um so i think that's i would say that's a positive change i don't know what you what do you think of that do you think that's true feel free to push back if you you may have like a different sense of it i'm not on a campus (laughs)
0: I mean, as you're, yeah, as you're saying that there's the more flexibility, uh, more openness to thinking um, about doing things differently. It's like, like my first thought was like, I don't know if that's true. Hmm. Um, But then my second thought was I could see how that's probably been improving over, over the years because, because the advent of technology and it has been so sort of rapid in the way things are, are, are changing how things are done. I think that that has made people have to be more open because, you know, then there's a pandemic and all of a sudden we're all teaching on zoom where every, where maybe everybody was saying, well, not everybody, but maybe there would have been a lot of educators saying, I'm never going to teach online. Now they're teaching online. And, and they have to see what they start to see what are the things that work What things don't work. And, yeah, I, I think this this influx of of technology and what it presents does ask does ask us to to answer these hard questions. and And I would say from my perspective with with faculty, there like there definitely can be that sense of we're not going to change. But what I see when I really dig into that is wanting to be so thoughtful about why we would change something because people in education are very thoughtful people. we've we've, They've they've been spending years doing this, spending years mastering their craft and trying to teach students. And they they have a lot of they have a lot of work done behind the way they view things. And and I've and some of the people that I've had interactions with that we were the most divisive with each other, I've also learned the most from. And sure. they've yeah. helped shape my opinion one way, and I've maybe helped shape their opinion in in a new way. And I feel like we've all grown because of it. And and we've all been able to maybe get closer to what is really the next right step for us. So. Yeah,
1: I mean, and I'm certainly like sometimes the the answer may be that you don't want to make the change that's being proposed, and 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 you know maybe there's a good reason to keep things even the way they are. But I think it's an interesting, you know, it's interesting as these tools, like you said, or come online, it sort of creates these, um, it creates these tension points and and. And moments where people are kind of finding, uh, working through like what what works mm-hmm. uh, for them in their context.
0: So I'd like to focus on some of the bigger themes that you've investigated and reported on. I'm sure we could spend an hour talking about each one, uh, but we don't have that time. So I just want you to have a chance to whet our appetites uh, with, with some of these. So one of the bigger themes is massive open online courses, uh, what are referred to as MOOCs. You were a Nieman Fellow at Harvard during 2013-14 academic year, focusing, I think, on how MOOCs could change higher education and the very nature of pedagogy. That year, you published an ebook called Beyond the MOOC Hype, A Guide to Higher Education's Higher Tech Disruption. What captivated you about MOOCs? I mean, I, I think you've actually kind of gotten into that a little bit about what's captivated you about technology and what it could do, but um, what was it about MOOCs and their place in and what is their place in education right now? They haven't run rampant and taken over, but they also aren't gone by any means. So, what are they still teaching us?
1: Yeah, no, I and it it it's, it is has it has been this kind of uh, rabbit hole that I've gone down, and, and it's been really interesting to see. You know, the at the time I did that fellowship, um, Harvard. Was among the places that was, you know, leading the way with the joining mm. EdX or creating EdX, yeah. um, with with MIT, and then obviously grown to other partner colleges as a nonprofit MOOC platform that that colleges were putting, you know, these video based, largely video courses on, and these companies like Coursera specifically, which is, you know, only grown to become a, a unicorn, like a public company worth more than a billion dollars um since then um so like you said they haven't gone away but i think i think there was a, a a moment where um you know this the moocs represented this question about um will there be major changes to both the the business of higher ed and 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 how it works and also um teaching at at colleges and it just was raising a lot of really interesting questions and there were um And it moved very, very quickly, especially at the beginning, where, um, you know, all of a sudden, a couple Stanford professors created Coursera, and it got a lot of attention and funding from, you know, some of the same backers that fund early funders of like Google, the same people were investing in Coursera, seeing it as this is the future, and a lot of worry among scholars and professors about this commercialization of, Mm -hmm. of, of what, you know, what is, what higher ed is. And so I think it has been a really interesting space to watch and to, to keep watching um, because of these tensions between kind of the Silicon Valley ethos um, mm. and the higher ed ethos, both of which are vaunted and and kind of have a lot of, have a lot of prestige in our culture still both, but they're very different and yeah. you don't usually see you know you don't you, i guess stanford is the one maybe exception where you have so many professors that do start their own companies but you know <laughs> but um you know at a lot of universities you you don't have the people that are going to you know say they're going to go out and and you know move fast and break things uh, to use this the famous you know <laughs> <like> facebook <laughs> motto of of mark zuckerberg so yeah so i guess the the moocs and they have, I think there are a lot of important questions still, even though I think the the early kind of hype talked about, oh, this might replace the traditional higher ed experience for people. And that definitely hasn't happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a lot of, even in the early days, people were like, well, that's not the point. Like, I don't know why people keep saying that so much because it, To you know, the idea was as Coursera and others and even edX, um, which was nonprofit. We're we're sort of saying like well there are certain sectors of or certain s- subjects of education that that do maybe make sense to be taught in a kind of um, you know kind of s- a little more self guided and and some of these are highly skill based type of areas of like s- certain types of computer programming or um, yeah you know the w- the way if you look at what is um, the most you know kind of popular course that that people pay for on those types of platforms they're very they're very practical based for the working world and they're not the kind of things that you major in necessarily at a at a traditional college experience where you're going off to college to kind of you get a lot of things when you do that like to find yourself and figure out what you want to do and it's and, and it's not just i just want a set of skills to get a job and that's all the only mm-hmm. thing i care about and so um you know it, it's it's it, it has been interesting to see what how that kind of piece what what the role is within higher ed of the kind of more pure job-based training and what higher ed is traditionally identified itself as and what the you know how much that what the interplay will be going forward is going to be really interesting because you know a lot of these massive online courses were they are created by colleges traditional colleges
0: yeah that's true and mm-hmm.
1: professors were ones making them and so it's not so foreign to higher ed but in some cases as it's evolved the business models are kind of sold to you know as a maybe as a bundle to a, an employer who might want to help their employees get a little bit of extra skills to keep mm. up on a changing thing but it's not in any way trying to replace a traditional credential And so, you know, it, it, it seems to have kind of added a new, um, line of business, so to speak, more of a continuing ed role than a, Mm. um, as far as what's caught on and and really stuck around instead of like replacing colleges as you teach it, as, as you and many others do it so well.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. No, that, that's really interesting. Uh, and and it also offers this, basically this, this, this push, uh, it's, it, you know, me, it's so that technology can't replace what the on-ground experience may may look like and what students are trying to get from that. But it's also pushing us in higher education in these on-ground institutions to think about how we're doing things. And that that seems to be a theme I think that's come up a couple of times now today, where it's what what are the ways that we can almost sort of I don't think checks and balances is what I want for the education system, but it's more like the, it's the pushing it. it's like, let's push you a little, let's, let's try to break some things along the way. Uh, because sometimes when I try to move fast and break things, I, I find I hit a wall and I'm the one that's broken at the, <laughs> uh, and well, I, I wish I could break things a little bit more to try them out. So I, I like that there are these, there are these entrepreneurial endeavors that, that kind of seep into the cracks of education and try to say, there are things we can do better. Let's, let's look at those.
1: And my role is unique in that I am. I certainly don't want to be identified as uh, any kind of representative of Silicon Valley myself. I, I think one of the greatest things about my my job at EdSurge and before that at the Chronicle is to be able to to be able to really have a, a talk to people in both worlds uh, of mm-hmm. higher ed and and being on campus is really like people really steeped in that culture and some of the people in Silicon Valley where like big bank accounts with hundreds of millions of dollars that are building that, that they think they're building the future and both sides think they have it right. And so I think, I think it is interesting to, so to me, that, that, that kind of dynamic is, is really interesting instead of I don't want to come across to your listeners as somebody who's like all about moving fast and breaking things. I think (laughs) we're seeing, we are in fact seeing incredible reckoning over big tech and all kinds of aspects of our life in not just, you know, not just MOOCs right now. And so there's a lot more skepticism of, you know, you know, I think it used to be that Google's motto of don't be evil. People were like, that eh, pretty sympathetic to like, maybe they, maybe they can take a stab at that. And now there's a lot more questions about big companies in tech mm-hmm. and whether they're, you know, uh, whether what they're doing is uh, how, what, what impact it has on us for better and for worse.
0: Yeah. No, I would say my my listening of and reading of your your work is, you know, I I wouldn't know where what like where you came down on a certain issue. What I know is that you are curious and you're interested and you just you just want to you want to ask all the questions. <laughs> it's it's great. So I think you're uh I think you're doing your job well as a journalist. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, no, I keep coming I, back. <laughs> I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. We'll keep we'll keep doing it here. All
0: right. So uh, let's let's talk about the Ed Surge podcast. I know that the podcast is just one arm of Ed Surge, which is a news and research organization that produces news articles and newsletters along with the podcast and also provides research services to interview you. That was actually a a chance for me to check out the website in a little bit more detail and and see what Ed Surge is uh, is up to. But I'm a big lover of podcasts. So that's where we're going now. Uh, Like I said early on, I I think I've been listening for about four years now. But the, the show dates back to January 2015, I believe. Um. Before you joined. Yeah, before I was in yeah. it. It's true. Yeah.
1: Uh,
0: so I was going back. That, w- that was fun to kind of go back. And I, it, I found that there's about, I think, 396 episodes. So you're getting up there uh, almost at 400 right there with another uh, favorite podcast of mine, Teaching in Higher Ed with Bonnie Stahoviak, who just crossed the 400 threshold a few weeks ago. So there have been many co-hosts for the show over the years, but I feel like your voice is the one that I've been hearing um, pretty exclusively for the past couple of years now. Uh, so, what has been your mark on this podcast, and how would you describe the podcast's current goals to your, you know, what I'm hoping are your future listeners that we're talking to right now?
1: Oh yeah, no thanks. And I, I it is, it is, you know, hard to to get people to be aware that a podcast exists. So, <clears throat> I hope people, if they're interested, would check it out um, wherever, you know, wherever they listen. But we, you know, we we talk about the future of learning, and one of the things that I think is unique about the EdSurge podcast and and really about Ed Surge in the kind of education media landscape is we don't just cover higher ed, although we do a lot of higher ed uh, episodes, if you listen, um, but we try to think for the podcast about episodes that will be kind of big issues that any educator would be interested in, whether they're all the way, you know, we, we do stories at Ed Surge everywhere from early childhood to executive education or to workforce kind of issues in education. So we, it, it, um, we have, you know, a, a, an interest in all of those things. And so the podcast, we only have one podcast though. And so we are trying to find topics that really speak to anybody who's interested in education, who is an educator or cares about education and is interested in where it's headed. And so we, um, you know, we, I think that's one of the, you know, Mary Jo Mata started it. She's a reporter for, an early reporter for Ed Surge and she was just fantastic. Um uh, person, she doesn't work at Ed Surge anymore, but she's great. And you know, it, I think there's been different formats of the show over time. And we've really settled into um uh kind of two two different flavors that we do now. And one of them, I think in the beginning it was just like two people, Mary Jo and another colleague chatting about the news. And because that was super easy to create. And then um these days we largely do um an interview-based show every every week. We come out on Tuesdays and talk to, you know, uh, usually an educator, or somebody thinking, you know, somebody who just wrote a book or has a new paper out that is kind of offering a provocative question or, or challenging something or really thinking through a tough issue. You mentioned we did an episode recently on what the metaverse could mean for education. And, you know, it was about an author with an author who, uh, a Temple University professor who wrote a Brookings paper, or co-wrote one, that, even though the metaverse doesn't really exist yet, it's just kind of this idea. I mean, it's kind of emerging maybe. Um, mm-hmm. She's like, they wanted to get out in front of it and say, here are, hey, people building the metaverse. Here's what educators know about how to make good educational experiences. Maybe you want to, you know, use that as you build your your metaverse instead of waiting. And so she was saying, we don't want to yeah. wait until it's already built to like come along and say, here's, here's what education could use. And so, um, you know, that we we were able to put that episode out literally couple days after that report came out. Um Mm -hmm. and so we're, you know, we're trying to to be of the moment and um and talk to people that are raising really big thorny questions. And and the podcast format, as you know, is great because you get to hear people think through those things. Like Mm
0: -hmm. a lot of our guests, they don't have
1: all the answers. And you know, I certainly (laughs) I certainly don't have have any. So it's like I have the questions. And so we are, you know, it's but to hear smart people engage in these things i think i think the listeners get to come along for that journey because they're probably thinking through it too and um and i think it it can be a, a great format for that the other part of what we're doing these days is um these narrative series that we do not every week but every now you know as we can and so um every you know month or two we try to come out with a an episode that's that's part of a series we did a series early in the pandemic called pandemic campus diaries where we followed a group of professors and students um of what it's like this first full fall during the semester during the pandemic and we came out with a new episode of that with the same kind of characters every two weeks and for a for a semester and it was it was it was amazing for me because i i felt very talk about gratitude of the people who participated because they Mm -hmm. were giving us, it was such a challenging time. I mean, it's still a challenging time The pandemic is not totally over, but I mean, there was so much uncertainty and so many disruptions that were new. And these folks took the time to share what life on campus was like for them with our listeners. And, you know, even sometimes sending in tape of them like walking around campus and reflecting on Mm -hmm. how weird things were as it was empty. Um, And, and so you know, these series are great. Um, and we're doing one now called bootstraps, which I could, I could talk about on, on equity, um, that we're kind of finishing up that that's been, that's been really fun as well. So those are, those are more like narrative podcasts in that there are multiple voices with a, a kind of a through line and, you know, we're aspiring to, and we work with a a former NPR, um, editor to help us shape those Mm -hmm. to, um, to really kind of try to you know, in, in, with like music and voices and just sort of a kind of an arc to, to try to be something special that can capture what's going on in, in, in a way that a, an interview is great, but a single interview, you know, is, is it doesn't always do that. So we try to do both of those things.
0: Yeah, I want to I want to say I really that uh, pandemic campus diaries series was very uh, I think it was very important for me personally as an educator, because I, I teach at one institution. So I see my students, I see the faculty around me, I see our response uh, to, I saw our response to the pandemic over the course of semesters. And, but that's just one response. That's just one set of, of data in a huge world with many types of schools. And uh, I'm at Hamilton College and this is a, a prestigious school. So I think we had a lot of, I think we were less affected probably than many places where we stayed in person for quite a bit of this. We had, you know, individual, individual testing done every, you know, twice a week so that we could nip any little outbreaks in, in the bud. And we, we never really had much of anything. So that's great. I, I, I didn't, I didn't get to to see what was happening elsewhere. And this series gave a chance for me to, to hear what it was like for for students and for faculty at many different types of institutions. And so I just want to say, for me, it was such a valuable series because I got to gain these different perspectives. And it, it also helped give me a, a lens into the life of the student that I wasn't necessarily getting because I wasn't always asking every day what, what it looked like for them when they went, when they went home or, or couldn't go home or you know what it was like in their room sort of being isolated. So I, I got to get a better sense of what the students were going through. And I, I think that helped impact how I would approach them in the, the classroom.
1: Oh that's great to hear. No and I I I heard that from both sides. The students were also telling me they were really um it helped them to hear the faculty's perspective mm-hmm. and that to mm-hmm. to get a better sense of how hard it was on that end cuz you know um and and the the kind of how different it was and how unsettling it was and the the fact that professors also had things going on in their lives um that made things hard. And so yeah, I I think that was yeah, we did six campuses and we've tracked a, a student and a professor um, at each and was trying to just kind of, uh, yeah, I think that, I think having students and professors um, share was really, I think was really eye-opening for, for, for
0: all yeah. of us. Um. Yeah, and I would love for you to to share a little bit about the the bootstraps series. I, I think you're um you've got most of the episodes for that out. And, yes. Uh, and I've I've enjoyed I've enjoyed many of those, and I uh, particularly the the one I'm remembered. I don't remember the name of it, but you were uh, you were talking all about grades and and how that system even came about and what it really meant now and what what we should be thinking about going into the future. So so yeah, say say a little bit about this this series and and what it's all about.
1: Yeah, well, it's in. I mean, as far as the the format, it's inspired by wonderful podcasts that people should also be listening to, like Line from NPR, where they look at you know something from the, uh, something from the headlines of today, but looking back at how we got to where we are, or whatever that topic. So it's a little bit, a little bit of history, but it's more like about like understanding it today, um, and better understanding it by really understanding where it came from, and um, and so we are looking at issues of educational equity, as we put it, who gets what opportunities, you know, mm-hmm. in America. So we, and it starts, you know, that we cover, we've got a sixth episode coming out in a, in a week or two. So stay tuned for that. I'm working on that right now. Um, but we start, you know, we, we look at everything from gifted and talented programs at, you know, that can start in second grade for a lot of kids. Um, and where did that come from? And it's, uh, it's a strange you know, it's kind of a strange story. And some of the early folks who put that together had views that we don't necessarily agree with anymore about like who you know what how we should think about ed- education. There was a a guy named Lewis Terman who invented one of the first IQ tests or, you know, kind of intelligence tests that um and he was a Stanford professor. Um and he was somebody who really thought that these tests could help figure out who doesn't need education like in a way like who in a public education system the idea for him was like who can we say oh these people don't need that much education and let's focus all of our educational resources on the ones that can make it which is a very different way to think about education public education than we have today where you know people want to help every i think a lot of people want to help every student reach their full potential and so it's a um you know what? How do you rectify the past with, um, with you know, the idea of of that is a valid one of like how to make sure people that do, um, that that maybe benefit from a little bit accelerated curriculum. How do you do that um, at the same time? Because there's plenty mm-hmm. of valid things about that. So kind of looking at equity issues along the way. And so you know, um, you mentioned we did one on grades, and you know, the history of letter grades. They didn't always exist and this idea of like, what are they for and why segment into, you know, A, B, C, D, F? like why only those categories and what is, what are they for and what have they been, where did they come from as an idea? And then how have they morphed into something where we think about the GPA, which obviously they all add up to a GPA and what, how has GPA evolved and how is it being used as a tool? And we, one of the students I talked to for that episode, um, you know, is on one of those scholarships. And this is done in a lot of states where uh, in a lot of schools where she was applying to colleges and to keep her scholarship, she would have to maintain a certain GPA. And there are some, you know, some high, some States where it's like to get into a flagship university, they'll take everybody with a certain high school GPA. Right. But that's a very different use of the tool than it was intended. And it makes, it sort of makes you think about grades. It's like, well, any you know, you could get a bad grade for all kinds of different reasons in a class. And is that, are we sure that's the right way to decide whether somebody gets to keep going to college or, it, 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 you know, these things that have evolved with the GPA is that, and then of course for selective colleges. And I talk about my own application to Princeton and was able to actually. Get Princeton to give me my own admissions file.
0: I yeah, I remember hearing that, and you being very surprised by what was in there. And yeah, uh, like how like, did maybe I a get... lot of what I did didn't matter.
1: <laughs> yeah, like why? Why? Like why me and not somebody else? It's like such a these selective higher ed, like your own college, right? It's like you, you, not everybody gets in, and so how do you decide? And how is it decide? And and so that one really focused on the role of GPA, but then we did an episode about the SAT and equity issues around the SAT. Obviously people have raised questions about that for a long time. But because we're in this moment where people are going test optional, more and more colleges are actually, because mm-hmm. of the pandemic, experimenting with, with going test optional as far as admissions test colleges. So it seemed like, again, like all the topics that we talked about, it, it wasn't just a kind of history because that's, I'm not a historian, um, mm-hmm. I'm a journalist. And so we were very interested in today but in every one of these topics, there are these very raw, live topics about, like, discussions about, like, wait, is this working? Like, is this, um, you know, we're having this national reckoning on race and society and and really technology and society, as we talked about a minute ago with big tech questions. So it's like, how do these all fit together? And how how do we, how to kind of better understanding of of the systems that, drive who gets what opportunities in education, how could they be rethought in the in the lens of today's um, national conversation about about race and equity?
0: I want to jump in to some of your experiences as an educator yourself. I see that you've been in the classroom teaching a course on news writing and reporting. For the journalism school at the University of Minnesota and a multimedia storytelling course at the University of Maryland. That you did for quite some time, it looks like, almost 10 years teaching that. So I I, don't know, I really like this. I, I feel like having one foot in the classroom can help you connect more deeply with the educators you're speaking to. So along with being curious if you are currently teaching or have plans to teach a course again soon, I, I have a, I have a question that can be approached kind of from two sides. Did your reporting over the years shift the way that you did things in your classes and did the experiences and challenges you faced in class inform what guests you wanted to speak to for the podcast or what articles you might've wanted to written?
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah. And I, I'm not teaching now. I would love to, but um currently, you know, I'm kind of overbooked and uh, yeah. hope to do it again sometime. Um, but it was, it was great, especially while I was at the the Chronicle of Herod and living in DC, I, I the university of Maryland college park, is really near and dear to me they have a great journalism program and it was I was able to teach a course um, and fit it into my my work and, and life balance that was really really fun to, and engaging to be and energizing to be working with students starting their careers and we you know we did a lot of it was a multimedia storytelling course so we talked about audio storytelling uh, which I still get to do and and, yeah. and video and and um, it was it was a real you know it was a real energizing and I, to, to answer your question, it definitely, there were definitely, there's interplay both ways for sure. I mean, I I was, you know, lucky in my day job uh, to be, you know, hearing about new ideas and teaching and sometimes would, would try things. I think it does make you realize how hard it is, um, especially, you know, as an adjunct, but I think any teacher, mm-hmm. it's difficult work, it's challenging work and how much time it can take to do it right. And how much time people end up having and whether yeah. you know whether you're tenured or not i'm sorry whether you're an adjunct or whether you're full time doing it you know you have other things going on um and so you have other professional obligations that you have to fit teaching into and so it can't just be an infinite amount of time that you get to spend on it and so seeing how hard it is to do anything different beyond just taking the assigned textbook and and going yeah. through what's expected to make sure students get what they need to get you know to meet the goals of the class and so yeah i think that that recognition or you know reality check on how hard it is to to do anything different and so that's that definitely is has been eye opening and helpful and i'm sure it's informed i hope it's informed my questioning and and topics that i think about for education and and as far as like you know specific guests, I I don't know if it's as much specific guests as making me realize the complexity of of teaching, and and I think that's always helpful to be reminded of when you know mm-hmm. when covering things that are that are changing in 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 education.
0: Yeah, I I'm very prone to get caught up and excited about new directions and. Uh, you know, about, about a lot of the great research that has been done on active learning strategies and, you know, moving away from a lecture style into uh, a classroom where student, there's a lot more onus on the students to be doing the work. And I also recognize how challenging that can be, um, because sometimes it's it's all of our energy just to just to get some notes together to be able to talk through a topic in class so that we, you know, use our time in our three hours of class each week it can be really it can be really difficult to com- completely do a, a new model to try something different and to to have that work there's a lot of you know some pushback from students because they're not used to it and then you know uh, you know making sure you have the right questions and having the most effective activity so it's a it's a tough thing it's a tough thing to do, so I'm trying to to balance my excitement with encouraging folks to try things and move forward with also the realities of of how tough it is.
1: <laughs> well, and how individual the students are, right like yeah what what works for one student and really gets them going. like there were things that I tried that did that that I could see like overall didn't work. but then one of the students in that class like tweeted, recently about like, they still remember that one activity that I don't think really worked for everybody. So I'm like, you know, what is that a win? Is (laughs) it a win or a loss? I don't know.
0: (laughs) Yes. No. Uh, (laughs) All right. So we should probably start wrapping up here. I want to say, so the tagline for the podcast is a weekly podcast about the future of education. So that's where I'd like to wrap up using your journalistic crystal ball. What do you think the future holds? And what can we educators do to have a seat at this proverbial table?
1: I think it's a challenging time um, for all levels of education. The, you know, I, I think partly because of the context that that I mentioned before over um, how, you know, and we haven't even talked about polarization, but I think mm. the impacts of of that on um, on higher ed and K twelve are, you know, already you know, with questions of, of debates about curriculum and debates about um, uh, that that have just not been as, as loud in recent years. Um, one historian I talked to mentioned that these have come up before and mm-hmm. um, he took some solace in that, but I'm like, okay, well, th- there have been times where big debates and big culture wars have certainly happened, but they're happening right now. And so people have to live through them. Yeah. And I think... Um, it, it it does make it harder. You know, I was talking about the good news of, of people talking about teaching at least, but the, now it's like now that that conversation has grown and it is more mainstream, there's also, it's, it's kind of the polarization can seep in too. And so it becomes, it can become a more complex conversation and hard to figure out, you know, what information is um, you know, who's, who's driving the different uh, agendas or, ideas and how to, yeah, how to make sense of it all. So uh, there, and there are, you know, continual changes in technology and, and challenges to the, to the college of business model, like we said. So the question of how to make, um, you know, in a world where the, the Google Docs can Finish typing the word I'm typing for me. And a lot of, you know, white collar work is getting automated in a way that's never happened before t- in my knowledge. So it's, it's a challenge to say, how do we make sure, um, you know, the, the jobs of it, that, 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 that the work in higher ed um, can be there for people and that college can be there for people and affordable for, for people. So it's, there are so many different tensions butting up against each other that it is, I think it's, I think it's kind of a challenging time. And, and even though, you know, we, there are definitely going to be ways in which technology will help and, and be a part of a solution. uh, It's also clearly creating new problems, um, sometimes (laughs) often accidentally. And so the, you know, I think it just is really, it's, it's a really tough puzzle
0: yeah yeah well and and thinking about the the sort of ubiquitous technology in our life and how that may be now really starting to affect our our mental health and certainly the mental health of students and that's and that's that's a big piece that that i think about now as well but before I open up another topic, uh, let's 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 uh, send send my listeners to where they could learn more about your work and and read and hear your story stories from the EdSurge News team.
1: That'd be great. Yeah, I mean, we're at EdSurge.com, and um, we're a nonprofit newsroom. We. Um, have these? You know, you can sign up for our newsletters and the EdSurge podcast. You can find wherever you listen to podcasts. Just type in EdSurge podcast. And the Bootstraps series has its own podcast feed. If you search for Bootstraps and EdSearch, but um, you can just hear it. You can just find it within our. Um, if you go to EdSurge.com and click on podcast, you can just get right to it as well. Uh, so whether whatever mode you're in, as you're as you're listening or reading it'd be, it be great. And we would love to hear, you know, story ideas. Um, I'm at Jeff at EdSurge.com, just J E F F at edsearch.com. I'm always interested to hear, you know, is there a topic we should be covering on the podcast or writing an article about? Um, I'm glad to know about your podcast now to, I've listened to a couple episodes it's really interesting how you're, you know, engaging with educators and having them really tell their stories about why they got into it and how it, mm. you know, how, how they can, um, think, think about, um, keeping physics, physics alive. And, yeah. and it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying it. So, um, oh, thank you. Good to know about it.
0: Well, Jeff, this has been, I don't know. I've loved this conversation. I am a big fan of your podcast or Ed Surges podcast and, uh, and just, just, you're such a joyful person to talk with. You've been smiling this whole time. I, I, I love that. Uh, and and I, I love the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and, and for all the, great, all the great reporting that you do for the education community.
1: Hey, thanks. It's good to meet you, Brad.
0: As I was listening to some of Jeff's responses to my questions, I was in danger of getting lost into listening to his answers as though I was listening to the EdSurge podcast because I'm so used to hearing his voice that I don't usually interact with him while he's talking. And if I did, I'm not going to tell you about it. So I would be, I was sitting there listening today and realized, oh, right, I'm hosting this episode. So I, I need to respond to that or I, I'm going to have to ask another question now. <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't too obvious that, uh, that that was happening, but it was an, it was an interesting experience. I really wanted to bring him on today to, yeah, just talk about the EdSurge podcast and the work that he's doing and some of the perspectives and things that he's learned over the years. I know Physics Alive is usually more about physics and STEM education, but this episode I was happy to go sort of more broadly and just think about education in general. Maybe I can grab him again next year sometime and I'll pin him down on some STEM education topics. What do you think? I think I'd like to do that. I'd like to hear some of that perspective as well. But yeah, today I was just happy to get a chance to speak with him and to share with you, the listeners of Physics Alive, this other amazing podcast. So I definitely hope that you're able to check that out yourself. You can uh, go to edsurge.com or search your favorite podcast app for the EdSurge podcast, or you can find links in today's show notes. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast too so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates and be part of the conversation on Twitter at Physics Alive. If you enjoy the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star rating. You just need to go to Shows on your app, select Physics Alive, scroll down past the recent episodes, and click on Tap to Rate. This will add 10 days to your vacation schedule, and you won't even have to find a sub. Or it will help more educators find the show. It's one of the two. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've enjoyed this broader look at the landscape and future of education. Today's action step, check out an episode of the EdSurge podcast. I'll put a few of my favorites in the show notes. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. Until then, may you ever strive to help students reach their full potential and be well.